Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, the political uproar of 2020 ended with the historic inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris. And it was an amazing event. I loved everything from the singing to the poems. Just the feeling of the adults being back in charge was amazing. It was. I was in awe, too. History was made on so many levels that day. Defeat of a one-term president. The oldest person sworn in as president. Inauguration of the first female vice president and person of color. Uh, uh, Vice President Harris is Black, African-American, and of Asian descent. The list goes on and on. But back in the dark ages, when I was in school and civics was taught, we learned that there are three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. The power of the executive branch is the ability to create policy for our country. Now, policy is a law, regulation, procedure, administrative action, incentive, or voluntary practice of government and other institutions. Policy decisions are frequently reflected in resource allocations. That is, who gets the money? It's that last part that's important when it comes to policies, because usually money and resources are needed to execute policies. And I'm sure if a person had the chance to talk about a policy in America, one of the best places to do it would be as a guest at the White House, right? Yeah, you might as well go right to the top and talk to the person running the executive branch. Now, one of the most important ways to make an impact on systemic racism is to have an impact on policy. And I want to mention that we did rely a great deal on Clarence Lusane's book, The Black History of the White House, for some of the stories that we're going to talk about in today's episode. Today, we're going to be talking about Black African Americans who had an impact on policy through their visits to or employment in the White House because they were able to gain the president's ear by working there in the famous West Wing. It pays to be in the room where it happens, and proximity to power in America means being next to the president, especially getting an invite to his home. You're right. Now, Abraham Lincoln was the first president to extend political access at the White House to Black African Americans. Now, among the first and most famous was Frederick Douglass. Now, with the exception of Donald Trump, who didn't know Douglass was not still living, most people remember him as a powerful orator, organizer, abolitionist, and writer who lived from 1818 to 1895. 
this would be the perfect place for me to insert a shady comment about 45. But in the spirit of our new vice president and president, tell me more about this historical powerhouse and his meetings with Lincoln. Well, although he only met with Lincoln twice, Douglas made a major policy impact. For example, he lobbied Lincoln to include Black African-American soldiers in the Union military. Now, when Lincoln finally agreed, Douglas personally helped recruit and establish the 54th and 55th regiments of Black soldiers. Douglas also lobbied Lincoln to get equal pay for Black Union soldiers, but unfortunately, he was unsuccessful in that attempt. But it was the inclusion of Black African-American soldiers in the war that many historians believe was the turning point for Northern victory. Now, after the Civil War, Douglas's relationship to the White House continued to have an impact on policy through his appointments by four presidents, including U.S. Grant, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, and your special friend, Rutherford B. Hayes. Oh, Rutherford, we meet again. I can't escape him. But this time, I'm impressed with President Hayes. In 1877, my friend, President Rutherford B. Hayes, appointed Frederick Douglass as the U.S. Marshal of the District of Columbia, making him the first African-American confirmed for a presidential appointment. Yes, Rutherford came through that time, but we still can't excuse him for his other misdeeds. And if you want, (laughs) I agree. If you want to know what those were, go back to our episode, Presidents Behaving Badly. Rutherford ranks up there as one of the worst. Now, another famous Black African-American who tried to impact policy through the White House was my heroine, because she was a newspaper woman, was Ida B. Wells. Wells was a fearless newspaper publisher who vehemently spoke out against lynching. In 1898, she led a delegation from Chicago to meet with President McKinley after Fraser B. Baker, the Black African-American postmaster of Lake City, South Carolina, was murdered by a white mob. Baker had been appointed to his post by McKinley, but less than a year later, an armed mob of over 100 whites burned down the local post office, attacked Baker's home, shot into the house, and killed Baker and his three-year-old daughter. Now, when the group led by Ida B. Wells met with McKinley about this atrocity, he promised he would do something. But sadly, there was no follow-up, nor did McKinley ever intervene into two significant massacres of Black African Americans during his tenure. Yes, and Carol, if our listeners remember our episode, Capital Chaos, McKinley was warned about the coup we discussed in Wilmington, North Carolina. And despite several warnings, he once again did nothing. Well, if nothing else, he is consistent. Now, these are just a few stories of Black African Americans attempting to influence policy with early residents of the White House. But I believe you have a story about another famous Black African American whose visit to the White House caused quite a stir. Yes, it did. Now, the year was 1901, and the president was Theodore Roosevelt. And the fact that he was even president is a 
story for the ages. Roosevelt had been the replacement vice president to McKinley, only to have McKinley assassinated, making Theodore Roosevelt president in September 1901. Now, you're not saying Roosevelt had him assassinated. Oh, no, 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 no. He did it, but it was just weird. He went from governor of New York to replacement vice president to president. Hmm. Quite a stepping stone. A big stepping stone. Now, the president of the United States um, often extended invitations out to visitors. And that was something that Roosevelt thought, you know, was normal and didn't think it would be an issue, even if it was to someone he admired. But it was an issue because he extended that invitation to none other than Booker T. Washington. A Black African-American man. Very true. Now, it had been set up on the appointment calendar, and the thought of just changing it over to a dinner seemed perfectly fine to President Roosevelt and, and Washington. They had a working relationship, and Theodore Roosevelt saw Booker T. as sort of a liaison between him and the African-American community. Um, now, even b- white Southern segregationists admired Booker T. Washington because his approach to learning was something called the practical approach. And that led to him founding the Tuskegee Institute. Now, once the two men decided they would dine together, they were given pause because the men in the South would not be happy when they learned who was coming to dinner. Hmm. Now, once the information was put out, Booker T. Washington was painted as a social menace. His visit was depicted as a threat to the social order uh, of the day. And this intelligent man was now viewed as some sort of deviant and even subhuman. Political illustrations of the time depicted both Roosevelt and Washington in a variety of unkind ways. Roosevelt was seen as a pandering politician to Black voters. And Booker T. Washington, like I said, was seen as some sort of sexual subhuman deviant. But what was the issue? It was just an invite to dinner. That's right. So what was the issue? Now, African-Americans had frequented the uh, White House often for several reasons. And we know from our last episode, they've been an integral part of the run of the house and the building of the house. But in those days, especially in the South, dinner with a man's family was a sign of social equality. It did, but, and it didn't matter how many achievements Booker T. Washington had achieved or would achieve, he would never be seen as equal to a white man. So that invitation was a no-go. So he could go to the office and talk to him in the office, but having dinner was a big deal. A big deal. Now, in her book, Guest of Honor uh, by Deborah Davis, the the full title of the book is Guest of Honor, Booker T. Washington, Theodore Roosevelt and the White House Dinner That Shocked a Nation. She's quoted as saying this. If you invited a man to sit at your table, you were actually inviting him to woo your daughter. 
he should feel perfectly comfortable asking for your daughter's hand in marriage. And that was the primary reason most people invited men to come to dinner. So when Booker T. Washington, a black man, was invited to the president's family table, and in written rule was broken. Hmm. So mm, it's hard to imagine these rules from the uh, viewpoint of 2021. But at the turn of the century, I can imagine rules like this were pretty strict and definitely when it involved Black Afri- African-Americans. Now, both men soon realized that the invitation was a big deal. Now, Theodore Roosevelt was known for his imp- his impulsiveness. So even though he pondered and pondered the invite, he got embarrassed with himself and extended it anyway. Booker T. Washington, however, gave his response a bit more thought. He knew the weightiness of being the first African-American to be invited to dine at the White House. He will be setting the standard for African-American visits for the rest of American history. He was nervous and he knew there would be backlash, but he did it anyway. And after the break, we'll discuss the response to this infamous dinner party. Well, Courtney, who knew a simple dinner invitation, at least by our standards, would carry so much weight? Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear how this dinner proceeded. And I'm anxious to hear what happened at the dinner. But before we hear about it, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to learn more about systemic racism and to get more of our podcasts or contact us, you can find us at our website, podcast.whyaretheysoangry.com. You also can take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. So, Courtney, what happened at this historic dinner with Booker T. Washington that caused such a scandal? Well, when we left off, President Theodore Roosevelt had extended a dinner invitation to Booker T. Washington, and Booker T. Washington graciously accepted. Now, Washington arrived on time with his invitation in hand to the north door at 8 o'clock. Now, dinner would be served in the Blue Room, and fellow dinner guest Philip B. Stewart of Colorado had joined them. The dress was evening and both the president's wife and daughter were in attendance. Now, by morning, this dinner was front page news. And mind you, only a month before the president had been assassinated, but this took over the headlines. It was the fact that Roosevelt had allowed his wife and daughter to be in attendance. Many viewed this as Roosevelt offering his daughter to Booker T. Washington for sexual favors. My, my. Vulgar poems and cartoons of what people imagined happened at the dinner and after the dinner were printed in actual newspapers across the South. And the poems I won't even read in front of you. 
But it got so bad that Booker T. Washington was stalked by an assassin for years. And this man had sworn to kill him. Now, eventually, the backlash was so great that the Republican Party just completely changed the narrative. Oh, that's, then- not, that's not unusual. It sounds like changing the narrative is the ongoing uh, methodology that we have in this country. A little bit of alternative facts, if you will. Mm. Now, the dinner party, the lavish evening dinner party in the blue room was now changed to an office appointment where two men got hungry and enjoyed sandwiches. Mm, that's, a, yeah. that's quite a change from evening attire to business attire and sandwiches. Little ham and cheese sandwich. Mm. And it wasn't until the 1930s that President Theodore Roosevelt's wife put the room at arrest that it wasn't lunch. There were no sandwiches. It was just a charming dinner party amongst uh, friends and equals. Now, before anyone gets to thinking that Theodore Roosevelt is some Renaissance man, he had his issues with race as well. He firmly believed in white supremacy and white male superiority, as well as eugenics. But this invitation was a step in the right direction. Well, I I guess you could say that in spite of all the other things you told just told us about uh, Roosevelt. Um, The other thing that I found interesting about your story, uh, Courtney, is that considering Booker T. Washington's influence and popularity among whites, the reaction to that dinner seemed very drastic. But I kind of get the drift now that you told us some more about uh, Roosevelt, which uh, probably summed up the way a lot of people felt in the South particularly. And remember, Washington, D.C., the city of Washington, D.C., is considered a Southern city. So what happened there would have been considered out of the norm for uh, Southern, what people would and would not accept in the South. You're absolutely right. I just feel bad for Mrs. Roosevelt, the first lady, as well as the first daughter, just being depicted so inappropriately because of racism. Mm, mm, mm. Well, once again, that's what our podcast is all about, systemic racism, and it doesn't escape the White House. Now, Courtney, although private citizens, including Booker T. Washington, tried to have impact on policy by visiting the White House, it wasn't until 1955 that a Black African-American was employed at the White House in a position with the potential to influence policy. Up until then, the only Black African-Americans employed at the White House were serving staff. E. Frederick Morrow was appointed as a presidential aide to President Eisenhower. Now, traditionally, presidential aides oversee the political and policy interests of the president, and his official title was Administrative Officer for Special Projects. Now, that sounds like a big and important job. How much impact did Morrow have? Well, it does sound like a big, important job, but Morrow didn't have much impact. I've actually, I've been told that often when a title includes the word special projects, there's not much power associated with that job. But even though he came to the position with an outstanding pedigree, including a law degree from Rutgers University, Jim Crow and systemic racism stymied him. At first, none of the White House secretaries were willing to work for him. 
And it was an unwritten policy that women would only come into his office in twos. Now, Morrow had little or no impact on Eisenhower's policy. For example, even though he made efforts to get the president to meet with Martin Luther King Jr., A. Philip Randolph, and Roy Wilkins about the Montgomery boycott, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, Eisenhower postponed the meeting. And when he finally did meet with them, nothing came of it. Morrow was never seen in the Black African-American community as effective, and eventually he faded into obscurity. Wow, he was the first Black African-American employed by a president. He could have had such an impact, but the way people treated him in these unwritten rules, I think that might have caused him to fade away. Mm -hmm. Now, has anyone else been hired since him, and how have they fared? Yes, yes, others have been appointed, and depending on the political party, some have fared better than others. Since Eisenhower's administration, Democrats have been more prolific in appointing Black African American policymakers. The Republican Ronald Reagan is well known for bringing in a number of Black African American policy advisors, but a close review of their record shows them to be highly conservative anti-civil rights, anti-welfare, and anti-government apologists for systemic racism. So even though Reagan did appoint or at least have a number of Black African-American advisors, they thought like him pretty much. So unhelpful ornamentation. Hmm. But Aunt Carol, wouldn't you say Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell turned out to be successful policymakers? Yes, uh, Courtney, my dear niece, I would agree with you. Both of them continue to be respected for their abilities and their roles as Secretary of State, and they were able to mold some of America's most important foreign policies. Now, considering we have a new administration in the White House, let's talk about here and now. It looks like President Biden seems to be keeping his promise to build a cabinet reflective of the American population. You are right. Right again, my dear niece, including Vice President Kamala Harris. Listen to these numbers. There are 26 cabinet level positions in the Biden administration. Half of the nominees are people of color. Many still must be confirmed by the Senate, so it's not a done deal. But his proposed cabinet includes Black African Americans, Hispanic Latino, Asian Pacific Islanders, Native Americans, and multiracial individuals. Nearly as many women as men are in Biden's cabinet. It's the first time America has seen so many women in the top ranks of a presidential administration. Overall, There's more racial and ethnic diversity than either Obama or the Trump administration, for sure. Well, it sounds like we're moving in the right direction. We've got some policymakers, movers, and shakers of all kinds. Yes, we do. Now, just because the cabinet is diverse doesn't mean automatically there will be wise policy decisions, but at least there will be thinking from a variety of different backgrounds to inform decision-making. There's an old saying that goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. So hopefully, by having diversity at the table, there will be fewer opportunities for the unrepresented to be on the menu. I hope so. I'm wishing President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and all those in that diverse 
cabinet much much success now as we bring this episode to a close i want to share something with our listeners if you want to find every single episode of why are they so angry plus our social media platforms and a way to leave us a comment and get official swag go to this link podcast.whyaretheysoangry.com that's nice and simple you find it all in one place well, thanks, Courtney, and we'll keep an eye on the Biden administration. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.